Please hold for Armchair Adventurer. That's not the kind of podcast we are. The mailbox is full and cannot accept any messages at this time. Goodbye. Mommy made me mash my m and <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> The wait is over. We've pushed it back weeks and weeks and weeks, but it's finally here. The long-awaited change in format series on American business magnets has arrived. We are starting, of course, with the most famous of them all, John D. Rockefeller. Initial thought. Actually. Yeah, well done. Hold on. We're getting ahead of ourselves here. We've got the first ever guest that won't return as a host. (laughs) 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 Damn. (laughs) That was not, I, you know, I just assumed because I'm not saying you, you've already written me off. (laughs) (laughs) Ryan Peterson is sitting to my left. Good evening. Friend of the pod. Do you think you could hit us with a Daniel Plainview? Mm, That's a lot of pressure. I don't think I can do a Daniel Plainview. Um, I can do a FDR. I don't think that'll really... Okay. All right, I'll do an FDR. <laughs> okay. Good evening, America. I wish to speak with you about banking. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that'll have to do. Ryan has a glancing interest in John D. Rockefeller and his ilk, so he decided to hop on this one. He begged and pleaded until I finally capitulated and said, yes, Ryan, you may join. Uh, do you guys have any thing you want to get out of the way about Rockefeller before we actually get into it? Nope. Um, <laughs> one okay. thing that I encourage um, any of our uh, listeners that may be interested in architecture to look up is some of his homes. I don't think we're going to talk about that at all. Um, but he th- he built some really insane homes for himself throughout True. time, being such a wealthy man. They're beautiful, and uh, definitely check them out if that's something you're interested in. Would you say they're estates? Mm. Yes, I would call them estates. Beautiful. At now, Greg, you mentioned, you mentioned his wealth. Yes. <clears throat> How wealthy was he? Um, I mean, I'm, I don't know if I even got you into don't have the to give exact us a number. figures. Uh, we don't need my, a number. Like in my research. Maybe just a statistic. Uh, well... Compared to the GDP of the country at the mm. peak of his wealth, he was over one percent of the United States' GDP, making him not only the richest man in the United States but also the richest man in the world. And not only the richest man in the world at the time, richest man in the world that's ever lived, at least as far as modern research has been able to tell. So, monumental amounts of wealth and a fitting first subject for this podcast series. Yeah, like if I and if I understand this correctly. His wealth today would be something in the range of, I think it's 400 to 450 billion. Is that about right? <laughs> God, something about something about there. I guess that's like something we should more have than twice up. as wealthy as uh, <laughs> Jeff Bezos currently is. Sorry, Jeffy. Well, and didn't also, he? That's like didn't he lose a chunk of that? That's when the U.S. GDP was quite a bit smaller, which means he was a much bigger fish, much bigger fish in a much smaller sea. <laughs> I like that. Glad we got the moral of the story out of the way in the first three minutes. Yeah, it'd be tough to come up with one. Be a big fish in a small sea. Hmm. Um, now, Paul, I believe you've done some research into his early life. Is that correct? 
Yes. So good. I actually that's what we know. told you to do. Hey, <laughs> so I get paid to do right. <laughs> um, so I don't know too much about John Rockefeller, but I will play student most of this. But he was born John Davison Rockefeller on July eighth, night. Excuse me, eighteen thirty-nine, in Richford, New York. His parents were Eliza Davison and William Avery Devil Bill Ooh. Rockefeller Sr. Devil yes. Bill. <laughs> Devil Bill is in a nickname or yes, that's his confirmation alias. name or <laughs> yeah. no, that's his it's, alias. That's his Christian yeah. name. <laughs> <laughs> um, also known as Big Bill, but I think Devil Bill is a little more notorious. But he was uh, his father was a con artist who is known for stealing horses, selling random elixirs, and also loaning out money to farmers <laughs> that he knew that they couldn't pay him back. So he would just basically foreclose the home and have a brand new farm to sell and make money off that way. Now, real quick, <clears throat> when do you think elixirs stopped existing? Ooh. Do you want when the real answer or a joke? Alchemi- do you have a real Alchemists answer? weren't a job? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, real real answer is about like the time period that we're talking about, end of the eighteen hundreds, when you started having like medical Actual schools medicine. and like professional organizations for people that went to medical schools start to sort of draw the line in the sand and, and kick people out. Like midwifery started to decline seriously at the end of like the nineteenth century because doctors were trying to like more clearly establish the lines of like who could perform medical procedures and stuff. Thank you. That yeah. Makes sense. And here that makes sense. And here I was just thinking that we ran out of snakes to squeeze the oil out of. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. That's funny. Cause, uh, Old Devil Bill actually became a snake oil salesman yeah. in his later parts of his life. Like literally? Um, my, literally. Okay. Yes. Oh my God. But uh, he's he was also known, um, you know, even more tarnishedly that he raped a girl in 1849. Uh, but somehow charges were never brought about because after he was bailed out, he went into hiding. So they just never found him. Um, you could do that back you then. Slithered away. You could do yeah. You could do that back then. Change your name and just go run off, and no one will know. Um, there's there's another thing later, you could get away with back then that I'm sure you'll talk about as well. Uh, maybe we'll see because uh, <laughs> so Joseph Pulitzer, um, the very same Pulitzer Prize uh, um, editor, editor, writer, person, author, person. Yeah, um, I don't actually know what he did before the whole prize thing. Yeah. Um, either way, later in um, John D. Rockefeller's career. Pulitzer attempted to tarnish his name by trying to find out more about his dad and expose him of his past, but was never actually able to expose the full story until two years later after his father had died, uh, Double Bill had died. So at that point, it's like, okay, well, no one really gave a fuck. This guy's rich anyways. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, so John, he grew up with the typical deadbeat dad, uh, List life <laughs> credited much of his upbringing to and his values to his mother, um, and he said that once uh, he said once that he was trained to work, to save, and to give, referring to his childhood. So even at a young age, um, 
he was very much taught that money is a thing and you need to make sure you get it. So uh, <laughs> after high school, he went to a 10-week business course at Folsom's Commercial College where he studied bookkeeping. And then later his first job would be as a bookkeeper for Hewitt and Tuttle, a produce commission firm, um, where he developed much of his knowledge on transportation costs and negotiating skills, which um, his preferred method was persistent and pestering. <laughs> Is that a quote <laughs> from somewhere? Uh, from him. So um, he actually compares it opposite to his dad, but I'm sure his dad was very much persistent and pestering as well. Yeah, I think that's part <laughs> of the definition of snake oil salesman. Uh, it's got to be, right? <laughs> um, towards the end of his bookkeeping career, uh, he made a statement saying that his two great ambitions were to make $100,000 and to live to 100 years. <laughs> so he knocked one of them way out of the park we'll say. Um, and the other one, he was only three years short because he died at the age it was 2013. of 97. What's that? It's like 2013, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just the other day, actually. Um, That's why we're making this episode in, in memoriam. It's a five year yes. anniversary. <laughs> Rest in power. <laughs> so, um, a hundred thousand dollars. That's comical. Well, like yeah. my understanding is, like in today's money, that's, that's like three million gold. dollars. Is that no, it's, yeah, you know, of course, no, but goal. I'm just saying because oh, of the yeah. result. Oh yeah, way undershot that one. <laughs> um, yeah, hindsight 2020 for sure. Can I uh, um, throw in one little bit about his first job that I I, I read about that I thought was sure. really interesting? Um, so he was so elated that he got his first job, basically because he he had a lot of resentment towards his dad for being a piece of garbage um mm. and so like his his main goal was to get out of the house and he needed a job to do that he was so happy that he got a job that he created a holiday of his own called job day it was september 26th and he celebrated it the rest of his life <laughs> just him i i assume his company too yeah. i can't you know can't imagine he kept that to himself but like his entire life every single year he celebrated job day that's awesome did you see anything about his little red book I didn't. Okay, good. I'll, I won't bring it up now, but... Okay. Okay. It's related. Cool. Love that, like, job day was a thing, and then the government had to be like, well, we can't just let him have job day. We'll create uh, Labor Day. Yeah, also in September. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck that guy. <laughs> but in uh, 1859, he started his own produce commission uh, business with a partner named Maurice Clark which um, will come up several times throughout his story. Uh, they became decent businessmen, netting $4,400, um, which is nearly half a million today in the first two years of their business. Dang. Um, and then once the Civil War kicked off, his business skyrocketed because the Union Army, obviously they needed massive amounts of food and supplies to be brought across all the front lines and throughout the war. Did you, have, did you happen to find out about why he... Well, did he serve in the Civil War? No. So he avoided the Civil War like any good rich northern, northern <laughs> man. Um, he hired substitute soldiers to avoid enlisting. And in quotes, he said, I wanted to go into the army, do my part, but it was simply out of the question. There was no, there was no one to take my place. Could, could you explain <laughs> when, me quite what... Quite literally, someone did take his place. What is substitute soldiers... <laughs> 
basically you can pay someone to take your spot in the the drafting. I feel like that person would already have been drafted. Who do they, who do they find? <laughs> yeah. Someone who is does not qualified. Street urchin foreigners. Oh, it could be a lot of people, but yeah. also too, it's not like massive draft. Everyone in every man in the north needs to go in the army. It's in waves because you know you got a world to run. Yeah, <laughs> kind of. Yeah. So well, that um, would be a nightmare. That'd be a headache. Pool of people, but yeah. So. Like any good rich person trying to avoid joining the army. Could have just gotten bone Which, spurs, you know. Just accidentally, yeah. <laughs> it ain't me. It ain't me. So, I ain't no uh, fortunate son. Post-Civil War, uh, he kind of finished <laughs> up his produce commission business and gets out. Um, and that's when him and his partner Clark... They started getting to the refining of crude oil. So that's where I'll hand it off to you, Greg, as you kind of talk about his oil adventures. That's uh, definitely understating his oil, oil ventures. ventures. He dabbled. Oil empires, more like. Oil stands. Yeah. Can we just acknowledge the light speed that Paul just went through his portion of the, <laughs> the segment? Which is funny because I actually kind of extended it out a little bit. <laughs> Because there really isn't, you know, when you talk about the early parts of, like, no one cares about before Standard Oil, really. Right. Yeah. They always want the juicy stuff. Yeah, so, why would you? You know. Well, I just, speaking, I commend you. Yeah. Well, speaking of juicy stuff, the one thing I thought you were going to bring up that you didn't, that I definitely am excited to talk about, is uh, one piece from his childhood with uh, his uh, his old pop. What, uh, was it Wild Bill, right? Is that what they called him? Devil Bill. Uh, Devil, Bill. <laughs> Devil Bill. There we go. Even better. Uh, so his, his dad was clearly a, a charismatic salesman of sorts. I mean, considering the whole snake snake oil business. Um, but you got to. I can't be, believe that's literal. <laughs> no, I, I I don't think it was literal snake oil. But I didn't. I didn't want to say anything, Paul. But no, I'm usually pretty... euphemism. Um, anyway. No, I'm pretty sure he was like a snake oil. Literal snake oil? Because snake what, oil is yeah, generally... Hold, hold on. What I is will, snake oil? Okay. I need to <laughs> know if it's literal or not. Because that's an incredible <laughs> fact. Uh, well, anyway, you have to be <laughs> an extremely charismatic salesman type to pull off what uh, old... William old, assumed the title Dr. Bill Levingston and worked as a traveling snake oil specialist. <laughs> In quotes from... Well... <laughs> well that's. They do. I don't know what to say. Maybe, maybe he did sell actual snake oil. What do you mean, maybe? I think we just got the proof, Greg. I just, if you go to the Wikipedia page for snake oil, it even says it's a euphemism. For oh well, yes, color, but so. it yeah, had to come course. from somewhere. Yeah, the proof's yeah. in the snake. Somebody pudding, Greg. sold but the that snake oil, don't Greg. That. Somebody's got to go to prison, Ben. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what I was trying to say before was that. Old Devil Bill here pulled off the ultimate sale, and that was polygamy. <laughs> uh, oh my God! Devil Devil Bill had a second family uh, with another woman, and uh, somehow convinced both of the wives to agree to a sort of sister wives type situation, and they all lived together in one big old, probably not very happy family uh, with a bunch, a whole bunch of kids. But he he managed to get convince both of them to do that. And uh, eventually they moved and convinced their, all their new neighbors that the second wife was like their live-in housekeeper. Um, 
interestingly, bigamy like, uh... at, at the time, bigamy was not illegal, so it was just kind of a social outcast kind of thing. So as long as they kept people wool pulled over the neighbor's eyes, everything was all hunky dory. But huh, like an early Branch Davidians, right? <laughs> I guess it's exactly like that. But selling snake oil instead of uh, just Waco, New York guns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, enough about his uh, younger life. Moving on to his business ventures. So, as we were discussing before, uh, we had left off uh, pretty much about the tail end of the Civil War, where uh, Rockefeller and his partner Clark had been running a merchant business supplying things to the Union Army. Um, it is a uh, is also something I think worth noting that um, Rockefeller was an outspoken abolitionist, and uh, I mean he wasn't just like an opportunist selling. Um, you know, selling stuff to the Union Army. He was like an outspoken supporter of uh, Abraham Lincoln and was very much about it. So just kind of an interesting side notice up that I read there. But, yeah. Also, his father-in-law, I guess, was um, a key component of the Underground Railroad as well. Oh, interesting. I did not uh, come across legit, that. The actual like logistics and organizing, too. Very cool. Sick. Well, um, towards the end of the Civil War... Um, Maurice B. Clark, uh, as aforementioned, and uh, Rockefeller together had been kind of noticing that there were some opportunities to be had in the oil business, to put it lightly. So uh, specifically, they were looking at refining crude oil. So during the Civil War, the U.S. federal government was subsidizing oil prices, uh, meaning that oil prices had shot up from about 35 cents a barrel in 1862 to a peak of... $13.75 a barrel by the end of the war, which in today's dollars per barrel of oil would be $356 compared to where currently oil currently is at, which is 46 us dollars. And, uh, during the, during the, uh, two thousands energy crisis where oil peaked in 2008 was $147. So oil was more than twice as expensive per barrel relative you know, in relative terms, uh, than it was in 2008. So do you remember, uh, I don't remember how many months ago it was, but it was very confusing for me, especially because economic things like this just don't really jive with my brain. When the cost of a barrel of oil was like negative, it was less than $0. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. It was like, it was only for like a day though. It was weird. Yeah. But still, I mean, what, what does that mean? You know, my understanding is basically that would mean that like, there's so much X. I don't know. I, I'm not. Take it off my cost. hands. <laughs> they were putting it what? back in the ground. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're pumping it down. Trying here. <laughs> All right. Sorry, Greg. I... No, that's really interesting. That's that's something to think about. I'll have to look into that after this. So, anyway, um, with oil being so insanely expensive, there was a massive boom in oil drilling uh, during the tail end of the Civil War to try and capitalize on that you know, crazy amount of, or crazy expensive, uh, oil. So at the time, um, I mean, most of us today think of, you know, you think oil production, you think, you know, uh, Middle East, you think, uh, you know, sh- uh, like tar sands type stuff in Canada and, uh, North Dakota, you know, you think North Sea, you think Gulf Coast, the area you don't think is Northwestern Pennsylvania, but that's where a good chunk of this oil was coming from. Of course, man. Pittsburgh. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, it is... The Alleghenies. (laughs) 
fracking country. I mean, now uh, least, yes. Yeah. But I am time, not going to ban fracking. All right. Is that Joe sorry, Biden? I was going to say, I don't know. Anyway. Is that JB? Yeah. Uh, so JB. At the time. Ooh, subtle clap. <laughs> <laughs> not a panic clap, a subtle clap. So, uh, at the time, oil refining or oil production was unsophisticated is the is (laughs) quite the understatement they basically people are just blowing holes in the ground and then taking buckets and then just you know (laughs) picking up the oil silly straws and they they just would not care if that oil would just you know flow off into a stream or a river uh so massive amounts of environmental damage going on at the time but nobody really cared it was just would uh, you say that the process was pretty crude (gasps) oh Yes, I would, Dan. Thanks. Signing off. It's got to be one, at least one per episode, Dan. I'm glad. Well, I'm glad you fell on the sword because I also (laughs) almost made that joke. (laughs) Fell on the sword, man. More like ripped it from the stone. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. All right. Well, um, so ignoring the environmental damage, um, this is a you know really lucrative thing for a lot of these people. Um, thousands and thousands of people like move to, <laughs> excuse me. Um, <laughs> that's your one man. Yeah. What? My, my one sneeze. Yeah. yeah one my... per episode. Do you think okay. it's easy to edit these? <laughs> you crazy. We got to start from that's the beginning. Worse than a clap. Yeah. <laughs> we got to start over. Fellas, I got three pages of notes. Please let me get You're right. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> We're usually telling you to speed up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, crude oil was, uh, you know, what they were getting out of there. But what people really wanted was um, like the, the end user product that people were searching for at this time was kerosene. Um, cars obviously weren't around yet. Gasoline was not something that anybody really cared about. Um, but uh, kerosene was now like the oil of choice for um, oil lamps, which were all the rage back in the day. Um before that, it was like whale oil, but we, uh, you know, killed a, a lot of whales to get all that, and uh, that just wasn't sustainable for the, <laughs> the population of the world at the time. Uh, so, even though it was really difficult to ship oil at that time, and it was also very uh, inefficient to produce, like, you know, at refineries, it was still extremely profitable. So, it was like the price per barrel in 1863 of um of oil like refined oil was about thirteen dollars but the profit on that was about eight dollars a barrel so huge hugely lucrative business if you could get yourself into it which is why rockefeller saw an opportunity there it also uh at the time um an oil refinery was a surprisingly small venture at the time it was like the capital costs of creating an oil refinery are only like something like a thousand dollars. I didn't, I didn't adjust that for inflation, but still, like, that's, yeah, much. you know, not the, not the tens of hundred or tens or hundreds of millions of dollars that a refinery would cost, you know, to build today. Wasn't it pretty um, commonly like, I'm just gonna buy a piece of land, build my house on it, and just kind of do this out of my garage type thing too? Like these were not like large operations at this point. At that point, they weren't. Um, it only took about three men to operate an oil refinery at that time, which is insane. Um, but yeah. Anyway. What could those jobs be? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Splitter. 
yeah. Dorman. Yeah. <laughs> Who do you know here? Rockefeller. And the bucket so, guy. Anyway, uh, seeing this opportunity, Clark and Rockefeller decided to build an oil refinery in an area called the Flats in Cleveland, which is right next to downtown Cleveland, pretty much at the mouth of the Cuyahoga River, where it goes into Lake Erie. Um, so they didn't build the refinery themselves, or they, they didn't entirely fund the refinery themselves. They received some outside funding to do so. It was owned by Andrews Clark and Company, which included Rockefeller, uh, chemist Samuel Andrews, M.B. Clark, and Clark's two brothers. So um, most of the refineries at this time would keep the 60% of the oil product that was able to be used to create kerosene, um, but would dump the remaining 40% of the product just straight into Lake Erie or into whatever river it is. Good God. (laughs) Uh, But Rockefeller... Being the no, he wasn't an environmentalist. That's that, I was going to say that, but that's that's just not true. He was he was thrifty. So what he decided to do was to use the uh, use the gasoline instead of dumping the gasoline thrifty. instead of dumping the gasoline into Lake Erie. He used it to power the refinery, um, and then took all the other byproducts and decided to sell them off, um, which is something that for some reason everybody else wasn't doing at the time. Apparently, they were just okay with the waste. I don't know so, about you guys, but I I didn't really think of this guy as like a chemist. You know, well, but he, I guess I that's what it to took back in the then. beginning. See, he isn't. That's what I, I mentioned. I mentioned a couple of a uh, couple of my little points here ago that one of the people that came on with them to build to make this refinery was uh, uh, Samuel Andrews, who is a chemist. They hired uh, him on. He he did a lot of the like the design for the the plant, and he and he stayed on with Standard Oil for quite a long time. I believe he was on the board of trustees later. But we'll God, I'd hope so. Can you imagine yeah. how pissed you'd be if you're like. Steve Wozniak. At the beginning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I'll get into that in a minute. So, uh, some of the people that started that original company did end up leaving and selling off their portions. So, Rip. Um, anyway, so um, actually that is my next line. Uh, so Rockefeller bought out Clark's brothers uh, for $72,000 in 1865, which is today $1 million, uh, which gave Rockefeller a much larger stake in the business, which set him up quite well to capitalize on that position as the company grew. So we find ourselves at my next section, which is the founding of Standard Oil. So in 1866, Rockefeller's brother William built another refinery in Cleveland and invited John to join him in this venture. Um, a man by so the name of... Go ahead. Different, different state now, right? Pennsylvania and, you said, Ohio? No, so that, uh, that refinery was in Cleveland as well, the first one. It was in the, oh, flat, okay. the Flats neighborhood of Cleveland, which is like right next to downtown. Gotcha. Basically, the area just on the bank of the Cuyahoga River, where it meets Lake Erie. Um, Ohio actually plays a pretty central role in the company um, for most of the rest of uh, you know, their history. But uh, anyway, he, I mentioned that his uh, Rockefeller's brother William built another refinery in Cleveland. Um, he invited his brother John um, to join him in the venture. A man by the name of Henry Morrison Flagler also became a partner in this business in 1867, and the firm of Rockefeller, Andrews, and Flagler was established. That company is the company that we go on to become Standard Oil. What year was that, Greg? 1866. Okay. Yep. Um, I mean, we all know this company ends up being gigantic. How long do you think it took them to become the largest oil refining company in the world? 14 years. Four. No. Four years. Like six years? Two years. 
Oh. Took them two years to become the largest oil refining company in the world. By 1860. It was a lot of like acquisitions, right? That's my understanding. Like they didn't necessarily set up that much in two years, but they. People out and other people busting. I will dig into that like pretty much my next line. So we'll move on to that. Um, Standard Oil was officially established in 1870 as a corporation in Ohio uh, and then would later move their headquarters to New York City. So the next section is the growth of Standard Oil. So Rockefeller was known for being a very thrifty man, a shrewd negotiator, and a cutthroat capitalist. These tendencies of his uh, precipitated in the meteoric rise of Standard Oil that would happen in the following 20 years and beyond, particularly the next 20 years. So one of the most important things to understand about the story of Rockefeller and Standard Oil is that they were one of the very first businesses in the world to kind of structure themselves like most major corporations do today. Um, Standard had grown so large that Rockefeller could no longer oversee like the entire operation. So he decided to start delegating power to trustees who would run uh, business units, usually just refineries and associated businesses to a single refinery. Um, usually they were the heads of the companies that he would purchase and acquire and bring into the Standard Oil fold. So at the time, most companies, you know, never reached the point at which they got so large that a single person could not oversee the entire operations. Uh, railroads were one of the only exceptions to that. Um, but at the time, like, that was a pretty, uh, you know, a pretty new concept. A lot um, of government hand-holding with that, too. Yeah. Um, so these, uh, the way that he formed it was like a, a board of trustees with Rockefeller at the head, very similar to a... Uh, like a modern corporation's uh, board of directors of the CEO. Um, it's like the Roman and per- Persian empires. I mean, yeah, the concept of having like a, you know, a, a board of leaders and then a, a leader from that was not a, it, that itself wasn't a new concept, but applying that to a business and the exact implementation that they did, um, like the way that modern corporations do, uh, mm. was pretty, pretty uncommon set up at the time. Gotcha. Cert- especially in the public eye, you know, so... Anyway, one of the earliest examples of the cutthroat nature of Standard Oil's tactics was its approach to its competitors in the oil business. So Rockefeller would often approach competition with a buyout deal, uh, usually successfully. People were usually fairly willing. He, you know, he didn't lowball people. He gave them a fair offer. It's just sometimes people didn't want to sell. If people did not want to sell, um, things usually didn't work out so well for them. Rockefeller would uh, start selling his oil at a loss to bleed the other company dry to the point where they were going to collapse, and then he would buy up the company when they had no no choice. Oh my um, god, ruthless man! To me, that's like the 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 most bloodthirsty part of the whole thing. Yeah, no, he definitely was like vengeful in that sense, for sure. Uh, and then also he would uh, he would close, like just shut down acquisitions of his that uh, he deemed inefficient. So, um, you know, it didn't matter. Like, the, his whole thing was he didn't even care if it was an inefficient operation. If it was competition, he wanted to buy him out so that he could have an advantage. Um, he would rather buy an inefficient competitor and shut them down than deal with competing against an inefficient competitor, even if he could you know, do better than that. Such a weird, twisted sort of mentality. Well, pretty much how that's the business. world. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's business, baby. 
Okay, um, so Rockefeller also helped the company gain competitive advantage by working out transport deals that reduced the cost of delivering oil to his customers. Um, he actually was originally planning on creating a railroad trust similar to what he, what he did with oil, um, as, which is pretty crazy considering rail and oil were the two largest businesses in the United States at the time. And I can only imagine how wealthy this man would have been if he had been a rail magnate as well. Um, and he, he is actually... He was in talks with the Vanderbilt family uh, and the heads of other rail businesses, but his rail empire kind of never really panned out. He never really went down that avenue. I think yeah, we'll, Go ahead. we'll we'll give Vanderbilt his oh yeah time in the oh, sun, yeah. but it yeah he he preceded all all of these three other guys that we're going to talk about Rockefeller, yes he did Morgan and Carnegie. Carnegie. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you throw a little? Carnegie. His <laughs> accent, Mark. Andrew Ryan. So, um, yeah, that never really ended up panning out, but um, he they did end up uh, coming to some really advantageous rail deals um, throughout time. But obviously, if they're not going to be running the railroads, they needed to be on at least somewhat good terms with rail companies, as they were still completely reliant on them to ship oil. So, uh a, the main example of this that people usually talk about is that Standard was able to negotiate with the Pennsylvania Railroad to get a very discounted rate. In fact, so discounted that it would eventually bankrupt the railroad if, if it was allowed to go on indefinitely. Uh, that deal specifically ended up leading to the Pennsylvania Railroad going back on their promises and breaking their contract with Standard, uh, raising prices on them. Uh, Rockefeller was uh, less than happy about that, and so he just ceased to use their railway and built a pipeline instead. Ooh. Oh, uh, this is where it all starts, man. That yep. was his shtick, right? The megalomania yep. sets and, in. Uh, so he... Uh, you need me. He was the largest customer of the Pennsylvania Railroad and their main source of income. So um, he ended up... This pipeline saved him out of money where Disgusting. the railroad basically... You know their their cash reserves depleted to the point where they had no choice but to uh, but to just sell out to uh, to rock. But in between that, uh, one of the most interesting parts of this was this is even more of you know Rockefeller being Rockefeller. Um, the Pennsylvania Railroad once they lost their biggest customer, they're like, well, what do we do with all these trains and all of our rail cars that are designed to hold oil? Well, let's build an oil refinery. They thought, you know. Um, yeah, Rockefeller didn't like that, as you might imagine. Um, so he was furious. He actually was quoted as... He, he stormed into the office of the railroad, and uh, he is quoted as declaring, Why, this is nothing less than piracy. <laughs> exactly what he has been doing for yeah, years. Says yeah, says the billionaire. Yep. Pot, meat, kettle. Um, so anyway, um, between Standard basically selling their oil at a loss for a little while... And also this massive railroad strike that happened in 1877, which is when they built that refinery. Um, the Pennsylvania Railroad uh, had no choice, and they ended up uh, selling their refinery to Standard Oil for $3.4 million in 1877. Rockefeller had his fair share of run-ins with um, railroad companies and eventually unions. Yes. I actually am not going to talk much about that, but there was one specific... Union. Because Greg hates unions. <laughs> yeah. Are you talking about Colorado? Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. got it. You're going to talk about that? A little bit. 
Okay, all right. Because I, I didn't write anything about that, but I think that is really interesting. I'd actually read about that prior to this more so than I'd read about Standard Oil. Uh, that's a pretty crazy story. But anyway, getting ahead of ourselves. So uh, on to the Monopoly section of my notes. Love that so, game. In, uh, in 1877, the United States passed the Interstate Commerce Act, which created regulations on the costs of rail transport. Uh, a big big reason behind that was uh, that Rockefeller, all these uh, all these deals that Rockefeller had been doing, a lot of these were secret deals where like nobody really ever talked about them, and the public didn't know about these kind of things. Uh, so like the economics going going on behind the scenes for the railroads were like, you know, the economics were pretty screwed up, and some people in the government caught wind of it, and that's why that ended up, you know, one of the largest reasons that ended up getting passed. So it's worth noting that at this point, uh, the court of public opinion had largely turned against Rockefeller. Uh, people were angry at his tactics, uh, afraid of what might become of Rockefeller with all of his wealth, um, with many people being afraid that he'd take over the United States with all of his wealth or even the entire world, which, uh, you know. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, a man of that wealth, you know, at that if time? he really wanted to, could have, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so this is this has gone so far as, uh, like, Teddy Roosevelt campaigning on a platform of breaking down trusts. That was one of his big things he promised. Um, and newspaper and political cartoons constantly criticized Rockefeller, um, and this, that's uh, another primary driver behind the um, public call for antitrust legislation. So um, nationally, nothing had happened just yet, but Ohio actually planned and passed an antitrust law specifically aimed at Rockefeller and Standard Oil in 1881. Uh, Standard managed to dodge uh, this antitrust law because at the time it only applied to the state of Ohio, of course since it was a state law, and they dodged this by reincorporating their company in New Jersey in 1882. Um, they didn't shut down any of their refineries in Ohio or anything like that. They just reincorporated in New Jersey, which apparently allowed them to bypass this based on the way it was written. Um, and they eventually, in 1885, moved their headquarters to 26 Broadway, which is the standard oil building in the financial district. A very Another, uh, if any of our listeners are interested in architecture, as I mentioned before, that's another thing to take a look at. It's a very pretty building. Which one? Sorry. Uh, the Standard Oil Building. It's 26 Broadway in the financial oh, okay. district. So it's built in like 1880 something. So right. Yeah. Anyway, one of the I think it was also one of the tallest buildings in New York City at the time because I know it was like a key part of the skyline at the time. Oh, okay. So anyway, uh, next section of my notes is titled "Who You Gonna Call?" Trust busters. That's <laughs> Okay. Jesus. <laughs> poor, poor delivery of that, too. Hey, no, I, well, I, I, yeah, I was needed. Yeah. Uh, so in 1890, Congress passed the Sherman Antitrust Act overwhelmingly. This is something that I absolutely could not, well, like, not that I couldn't believe, but, like, hard to wrap your head around considering current gridlock. Um, how many people in both the House and Senate do you think, uh, do you guys think, dissented against the Sherman Antitrust Act total? Five. 25. Zero. You're the closest. It was one. Dude. Nice. One one senator voted no. The, There's always one. The House, right. the House unanimously passed the Sherman Antitrust Act. Okay. Which Good. just like one single member of Congress voted no. All eyes on that guy in that yeah. hearing. Holy cow. Yeah. 
So, yeah, no, that was just very hard for me to, me to believe. Um, so, uh, that created a national anti-monopoly law, and the law forbade every contract, scheme, deal, or conspiracy to restrain trade. Uh, though the phrase restraint of trade remained subjective. So, um, that was one of the only real downfalls of the way that the law was written. Yeah, there so, was like a uh, like a reasonableness phrase in there too that added a lot of ambiguity, which yeah, exactly. was exploited for a while. It was basically a law that was passed that like had no teeth until there was an executive that felt like, oh, okay, let's really lean into this, you know, which is, I'll get into it, but it doesn't really happen until the early 1900s. Yeah, which is actually like my next line, which was that basically like, you would think, well, actually, the next line is, when the law is passed, Standard actually controlled about 88% of the refined oil flows in the entire United States. So, if you could think, I mean, that's not 100, but that's certainly a monopoly, 88% of the market. Um, so, you would think that Standard Oil would be quickly broken up, but uh, this actually took quite some time to come to fruition, as Dan had mentioned. Uh, Standard was successfully sued by the state of Ohio in 1892, uh, leading to a dissolution of the trust. Um, this uh, changed little in reality, as this just led to Standard Oil of Ohio being broken off uh, with Standard's headquarters in New York City retaining control of Standard Oil of Ohio. Um, yeah, they just like sort of it was still all like incorporated in other states, right? Oh yeah, it was still incorporated in New York, or sorry, in New Jersey, headquartered in New York, and they basically just split off Standard of Ohio uh, to to appease the state of Ohio's uh, lawsuit. So interestingly, um, John Rockefeller actually retired from Standard Oil not too long after in 1896. Uh, but again, this is one of those things that's pretty much in name only. You know, he still uh, was very much involved with the business as he remained the president of the company and a major shareholder. Um, the vice president of the company, John Dustin Archibald, Archbold, uh, largely filled the role previously filled by Rockefeller, uh, but also a good amount of the control was also given to Rockefeller's son. So in 1899, the Standard Oil Trust was legally reborn as a holding company called the Standard Oil Company of New Jersey, holding stock in 41 other companies that controlled other companies that controlled other companies, etc. So it's basically a matryoshka doll of uh, corporations. Hold on a second. Did I say that right? Yes. I don't think so. I think no. that's right. Yep. It seemed like matryoshka? there were too many syllables in there. Matryoshka? Yeah, I think it's just Matryoshka. Okay. Mm, I don't know about I that one. I don't, I don't know. Why don't you talk about More. Microsoft OneNote a little bit, Dan? Do you got an opinion <laughs> on that program? Oh, my God. <laughs> Ryan, help me out Excuse here. me. Uh, Dan, in a previous episode, was the only person who didn't like Microsoft OneNote, and we all came to its swift defense. Loser. Because I got it open right here. God damn. Oh. Damn. Fools. Four to one. What now. do you not like about one. it? It's, it's, it's not that unique you can do the same thing he's gonna say google docs else. isn't he yeah you could you mm. could do like <laughs> yeah, there it is. Drive. you could do a flash drive on your they don't know like, enough about what me. else do you need, need my docs why do you All need my docs. a complicated program my like precious that? docs 
It's not complicated. <laughs> it's overly complicated for what it does. Greg, save what? us, please. So I'm sorry. Senses, you don't, you're making planning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Damn. All right. Well, back to Rockefeller. And Dan's a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> they have me trapped in Google land. Help me. So after this uh, Shell Corporation type deal, um, some of those Shell companies that I mentioned that were the outer layers of the Matryoshka doll. <laughs> um, some of the companies uh, may sound familiar uh, with some of the names of these companies being BP, Exxon, ConocoPhillips, and Chevron. I've heard of all of those. Yes, you probably have. <laughs> Wait a second. Um, so... Uh, this move, in general, uh, was disliked and distrusted by the general public, as yeah. they saw as they saw this as a workaround of the Sherman Antitrust Act, and that it kept the company completely unaccountable. Uh, and to that, I give a big duh. I mean, that's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's clear. I'm super duh. obvious. Um, but uh, yeah, the public opinion. So here's here's an interesting little side note. Um, so. The public opinion on these topics was kind of kicked into high gear by journalists who sought to shine light on the practices of companies like Standard, who were dubbed uh, muckrakers. So one of the most famous muckrakers was a woman by the name of uh, Ida M. Tarbell. Um, and here's where what I mentioned before, uh, she was the daughter of an oil producer who was put out of business by Standard. So I mentioned earlier that we would be talking about somebody whose father's business failed, this is that business. Greg. Yes. I have to interrupt with an important story about Rockefeller. Okay, let's hear it. It goes back about, I think, what's the last year you dropped in this, this chronology? Uh, last year, 1899. <laughs> okay. This happened in 1867. But it's, it's a good story that like, speaks to the culture around like his ego mm-hmm. and his like, sense of like megalomania. But in 1867, there was a train wreck. It was called the Angla Horror. And I think Rockefeller, I don't remember the meeting he was going to, but it was like a business story in a meeting, and he was going to catch that train. He was just late enough that his, his luggage made it on the train, but he didn't. And then that train crashed off a bridge, and almost everyone died. And so he like took that as like a, a sign of divine intervention that he was like destined to, <laughs> to like like oh, oh this has God. to be for me like <laughs> of course this is working out so well. How old, what yeah. was he born in nineteen thir- or eighteen thirty nine? Yes. So he was born, like born, under no, thirty years old. Yeah, he was no, pretty he was young. Born in eighteen ten. Oh okay. Oh. Or no no eighteen no, ten. No, no I, I screwed <laughs> up. Jesus. Sorry. No, you're, you're to be right. 100? He was born in 1839. I just, yeah, I had, so he's I like had, 20. Just too call me a liar. Wouldn't you? He's like had, 28 like, years old when that happens. I, yeah, I, I, I might take it as open. that too. Like, <laughs> yeah, when you're coming right up in the world. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I, I had his dad's Wikipedia page open. That's where, that's where that came from. Oh, daddy. But yeah, important um, formative story about the man. Damn, dude. Um, one thing. I bet you train accidents back then were very Awful. bad. Like, they're bad now. It's all well, yeah, and today and off we a have bridge, like no less. It's not like this stuff. just like tilted off the track and slowly just fell. This was going right off of a bridge. Oh my god! We, we've got the Wikipedia page open, and there's a painting, and it uh, it looks pretty ugly. Oh there's a lot of fire, a lot of wailing people. <laughs> Guernica. It's a painting. <laughs> yeah. 
that's that's pretty morbid. It's like um, everything down to like your seat armrests were made out of steel at that point. <laughs> yeah. I can see him like confidently <laughs> walking down the hill. Bodies are just decimated. He like Rockefeller walks down the hill of all the rubble, confident, like grabs this like burning hat out of the like walks past <laughs> bodies and people asking for help, tilts it, walks back up. I have business to take care of. How very cinematic. Also, Dan, like I I know that typically people use decimated like you do, where or in like a You're gonna total destruction kind Mention of that it means no, a tenth you know of something's gone. You're gonna go down that road. For it. No, I'm not I'm not trying to correct you. I just I always think it's really interesting that that has basically been transformed to mean like total destruction. Optimated. Like it really means one tenth destruction. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's it means of, like broken weird. into one tenth chunks, doesn't it? Yeah. No, it was it was killing every tenth soldier, wasn't it? Fuck, maybe. Oh god. <laughs> Is yeah. it a Roman thing? Is yeah, it legions. So. Okay, of course. Um, but anyway, talking about earlier, uh, earlier Rockefeller. So um, the divine intervention thing. I know that he was. I believe he was Baptist. Yes. But um, yes. I know that he rather uh, devout, in fact. Yes, and he he also was very interested in um, John Wesley, the founder of the uh, the Methodist Church. Um, he very much jived with his uh, his dictum. Gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. That was like his kind of Rockefeller's mo. Yeah, I got in a that lot order, that. no overlap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> certainly, certainly didn't do that. Give all you can thing, like you know. Yeah, kind of amended that one <laughs> when he got to yeah, it. He's like, give, Asterisk. give. No, this is all right. Stop at step two. <laughs> give some. No, and, and another thing he did throughout his life is he would like just carry coins around in his pocket, like a lot of coins. And he would give, I believe it was pennies to children and nickels, or no, nickels to children and dimes to Hey, adults. thanks, Mr. Rockefeller. He would just, he would just <laughs> hand out coins wherever he went, which is just a, just a really weird thing to do. But You know, not related but, at all. You know who used to carry around coins all the time? Who? Frank Sinatra used to carry a <laughs> roll of nickels with him at all times after his son got abducted. That's a Are fix for what? Punch <laughs> somebody. Would, yeah, just the, give him a little extra fist weight. No, the abductors would only contact him on pay phones, so he always wanted to have money ready to use pay phones. Oh, my oh, God. Freaky. Wow. That's sad. I didn't know frankly. his son was abducted. Yeah. Well, like Frank Sinatra Jr., son? Yeah. Oh, well, at least he lived. And yeah. Sang. And was Still living, guy. I think. Yeah. Um, anyway. Back to Nickel a day. <laughs> Keeps the abductors away. That's what they say. <laughs> what old Frankie said. That's, that's pretty good. Uh, All right. Frankie J. My last section here will be world operations post-1900. So Standard Oil, uh, around the turn of the century, found itself with such extreme levels of production that they needed to find other markets to, to start selling their products in, not just the United States. So... Uh, the biggest example of this was actually China. So um, Standard Oil um, wanted to find ways to sell kerosene kerosene to the Chinese because they knew that there was a large amount of people that had like domestic lighting there powered by like vegetable oil lamps. Um, <laughs> oh my god! Which just god. seems really inefficient to me, you know, um, and probably very smoky. Yeah, I feel like vegetable like lamp stage is like a, a yeah. stage of civil development. <laughs> 
So still in the vegetable uh, area. Standard saw this as an opportunity and invested a ton of money into production and shipping of kerosene into China. They set up like they didn't set up refineries there, but they set up like they erected giant tanks for kerosene. I think the Beijing area or something like that. Um, I know they had shipping like or like tanker boat type things that would go up the Yangtze River. Um, and uh, one of the other things they did, one of the ways they made inroads to the Chinese population was by giving away, or I don't know if they gave them away or just sold them at a loss, but little tin uh, kerosene lamps to use in your house. They would, like, basically... Mm, just to build almost, up, like, a market? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then would sell the kerosene to the people that would use those. I was just thinking, can you imagine how many undocumented oil spills happened? Massive ones? Oh, yeah, tons. I mean like it's crazy amount of like environmental stuff like that that was completely undocumented or at least very poorly documented anyway so um i think that's pretty much all i've got oh the the only other little thing to note is that um standard oil also was um basically like a middleman for some of the earliest oil producers in the middle east so once people started striking oil in the middle east um they didn't really have any kind of marketplace to be selling their oil on. Standard already had kind of like sales channels kind of figured out. So they worked with some of the producers in the Middle East to uh, to market their products to Western audiences. But uh, they also um, tried to drill for oil in Palestine, but ended up running into trouble with like local governments or something like that, which doesn't exactly surprise me. <laughs> but, uh, never what are you guys doing here? <laughs> drilling holes digging up black gold um so as greg mentioned at the end of his segment there he was getting into some of the uh international affairs of rockefeller and standard oil and um so my job is to sort of explain some of the reasons for the downfall quote unquote of Standard Oil, and it's right off the bat, I need to tell you that when I'm saying, like, downfall and failure and bust of the Standard Oil Trust... <laughs> I'm talking about none of those things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude, it, nothing bad happened to John D. Rockefeller. <laughs> no. Quite or Standard Oil, really. Um, <laughs> he escaped these things completely unscathed. Real quick question yeah. about your topic. Yeah. Do you know anything about when AT&T got split up? Or the, like, Bell telephone company, rather. Baby Sorry. Bells. <clears throat> no. Just that okay. it did. Then don't worry about it. <laughs> I was just going to ask if it was a similar thing, where it was basically just, like, split into... I, I, why don't you go ahead and tell us what happened, Dan? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I imagine it was pretty similar because most of these busts, these trust busts that we're going to talk about, were, were pretty much the same pattern. Okay. Yeah. So I split my section up into three different pieces. One is threats from abroad. Two is the already mentioned Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. And then three is public opinion and muckraking. So number one goes pretty quickly. Even though a huge chunk of not only the United States, 
oil production, but the world's oil production came from Standard Oil. Later in like the 1880s, we started to see, like Greg mentioned, oil prospects in the Middle East, um, but two major locations that Rockefeller did not really get a hand in were like East and like Southeast Asia and Russia. Not that like I, and this is a side note, not, I don't think even if like Rockefeller was really on top of sort of the Russian oil prospects, I feel like Russia between 1880 and 1950 was just so tumultuous and like if you were some sort of outside corporation with assets in russia like you had no real chance to hold on to those or like keep those safe you know what i'm saying because they went through so many different seized the means of production yeah i mean yeah at the end but even then (laughs) yeah i'm just saying like they had so many like flip-flops and revolutions and switcheroos (laughs) <laughs> the, old, the old Russian switcheroos. Civil switcheroos. <laughs> That's a good way to describe revolution. Uh, so, so these um, oil prospects in Asia and in Russia attracted other super mega rich families to invest in those. And so there was sort of this threat of like international oil. Um, but really until like 1890, it, it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, so that that's threat number one. Threat number two, as Greg mentioned earlier, was the Sherman Antitrust <laughs> Act. So it was signed into law in 1890, but like we mentioned before, um, the law didn't really do anything <sighs> until there was an, an uh, executive with like actual teeth and interest in using it. You know, it's it's up to the enforcement of the law in this situation. Um. I found some really interesting context to basically this Sherman antitrust act finally got some muscle with Teddy Roosevelt in, you know, the first decade uh, of the, the 20th century. But I found some interesting like political history that sort of gives some context to this. So what do you guys know about the election of 1896? Not a thing. Nothing. Okay. At least off the top of my head until I hear more, in which case I might. But yeah, So the two candidates. The Is two it with nominees. like William Jennings Bryant? Is that his name? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. All right. I'm yeah, like vaguely familiar with like he was like Welcome a populist working man <laughs> candidate. Oh, exactly. Yeah. He was full on A populist. huge advocate for uh, antitrust law. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was like one of the number one sort of number one advocates for antitrust laws who actually like had power to do anything (laughs) also known for how cool he looked in sunglasses. (laughs) So in 18, leading up to the 1896 election, William Jennings Bryan was doing these like cross country tours basically, um, which was pretty unusual. Like usually presidential candidates sort of stuck to, their own basement buttons sort of <laughs> yeah <laughs> so he was traveling all around the country talking about you know one he wanted to get away from the gold standard he wanted to break up these huge massive corporations specifically like the railroads the 
the oil companies, of course, Standard Oil was part of the conversation. Um, and, and he he was like a really good speaker. He was very effective. So these tycoons, these magnates that we're talking about in this miniseries were very nervous because William Jennings Bryan was looking like he really had a chance. Um, and so these magnates, you know, Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, uh, Carnegie, they poured so much money into the election of 1896 behind McKinley, the Republican candidate, that to this day, relative to, you know, accounting for inflation and everything, this was the the most amount of money ever spent on a presidential election. Wow. By you know how that like, compares to like Bloomberg, the last one? Because I know that was also like record setting. No, this was up to 2016. I think I 1896 more than doubled it. Whoa. Yeah, dude. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be one of the pictures that I contribute to the Instagram post because it's comical. It's a bar graph with <laughs> okay. expenditures. Speaking um, of, I have a couple of really good ones that are like political cartoons of... Uh, is... Is by chance one of those the like octopus type thing? Oh, okay. I was thinking the one where he's like standing like this with his hip and he has the crown that shows like each of the businesses. I love that picture. Classic. They're very good. Also, just to clarify, I I guess, again, that stat that I dropped about spending on presidential election is relative to GDP. Oh, not mm. just like flat out dollars. I feel like that right? almost means more. Like in a, in I a think so bigger too. Context. Like this is how much our country is producing. Yeah, we're using a sizable fraction to elect a president. Mm-hmm. Um, to give you some numbers, uh, Rockefeller alone donated two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which today is the equivalent of seven point two million dollars, and J.P. Morgan also donated the same amount. And again, in 1896, the GDP of the United States was only like $30 billion. So all in all, McKinley's campaign was worth about $115 million in today's money. He used part of that money to pay for... A ton of speakers, blah, 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 whatever. One thing that stuck out to me is that he paid for 250 million pieces of campaign literature. In other words, more than three pieces of literature for every man, woman, and child living in America at the time. Oh, my God. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. The Gideons. So who do you think won in 1896? Well, I know that the other guy didn't because he wasn't one of our presidents. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Damn, yeah, McKinley won in 1896. And the reason that I went through all of this is because if you think about like how politics sort of swings from one direction to the other today, it was the same thing back then. So in 1896, you have this election that sweeps in this you know very like business corporation friendly president and then in 1900 we sort of have like this middle of the road president um who then dies and teddy roosevelt takes over and then is re-elected as a, a member of the progressive party 
swings in the total opposite direction. And so that is really where the Sherman Antitrust Act gets its teeth. And these magnates that we're talking about start to uh, come under fire a lot more. So the Teddy Roosevelt administration initiated dozens and dozens of lawsuits using the Antitrust Act. And in uh, like 1901, at this point, J.P. Morgan actually owned majority stock or majority shares in Standard Oil. And this was sort of, I think, like a strategic move on Rockefeller's part, um, passing off a lot of his shares. So he, at this point in 1902, he was 63 years old, Rockefeller. And in this year alone, just due to investments, he made $58 million. One year, just investments. $58 million. That's crazy. So that's what I mean, meant like earlier when I said, even though the presidential administration, this antitrust act came flying in and busting up these corporations, no real damage was done to people like Rockefeller. He actually sort of made money off of the deal because Standard Oil was broken up into several different companies, basically like a few companies per state. And so now somebody like Rockefeller had shares of stock in dozens. I think like I saw a number like 34 new companies came from Standard Oil and John D. Rockefeller had stocks in all of them, (laughs) even after the breakup. So it's like you get to keep all your money, but you don't get to keep your company, basically. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. So that that was after like these lawsuits, the Supreme Court decision in 1911, they finally like legitimately broke it up. And yeah, 34 different companies. And over time, I'm sure you guys are aware of this. And um, I think Greg or Kane mentioned it earlier, but these companies just naturally started to merge over time all over again. And so some companies that we know today are like, there's there's only like a handful of descendants of Standard Oil in existence because they've consolidated everybody else. So ConocoPhillips, mm-hmm. um, BP, which became that's so BP. strange. It's like organic. It like wants to become Standard Oil again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We yearn for Rockefeller. <laughs> it, it yeah. I mean, that's just what happens. Like once. Once again, the political pendulum swings the other direction. It's like free game. And you're right. That's like naturally what it wants to do. And I say it very intentionally. Um, So the part three for the quote-unquote end of Standard Oil came because of public opinion. And as Greg mentioned earlier, unless Kane cuts that completely out, um, <laughs> who Ida, yeah. who now Ida Tarbell is um, credited enormously for public absolute hatred of standard oil in 1904 she published this um, book called the history of the standard oil company in which she basically goes through all of the things that we've been talking about as far as like the ruthless business tactics, just how much 
wealth John D. Rockefeller has accumulated. And to give you an idea of like how she describes Rockefeller and Standard Oil in her work, I have a quote. I also have that quote, but I didn't share it early. Hmm. So she Say said, it together. It's good. <laughs> she, she was surprised through her research at the magnitude of the business. And here's a quote. She said, I never had an animus against their size and wealth, they being these companies, never objected to their corporate form. I was willing that they should combine and grow as big and wealthy as they could, but only by legitimate means but they had never played fair and that ruined their greatness for me. So like even the most famous muckraker of this time in this subject was like, nah, like business is business, but just play by the rules, you know? Yeah. That actually was not the quote I thought you were going to read. Is that your only quote from her? Yeah. Give what you got. Okay. So um, the one I, I read from her was, Rockefeller and his associates did not build the Standard Oil Company in the boardrooms of Wall Street banks. They fought their way to control by rebate and drawback, bribe and blackmail, espionage and price cutting, by ruthless efficiency of organization. Almost sounds like a compliment. Almost. Yeah, Yeah, but like, you gotta realize the context of the rest of what she was saying. Right. It's just like a not playing by the rules kind of thing. So. I don't want to um, tread over anything that that Kane has prepared. Um, Better not. But I, I have a uh, combined net worth. Oh, go, go ahead. Most of my stuff is about philanthropy. So okay. So remember back a few minutes ago when I mentioned how at the end of his by the end of his life he has. Rockefeller has these uh, shares in 34 plus different companies, right? All of the broken up parts of Standard Oil. So he held on to all of these. (laughs) And uh, even in the aftermath uh, of this breakup, he, he was raking in profit so i mentioned the one year uh what was it 1902 he made 58 million dollars off of investments alone so if you take all of the combined net worth of the 34 companies that comprised standard oil um all of uh i mean rockefeller's shares from those companies his personal wealth jumped to about $900 million. True. <laughs> yeah. At the time. Oh, yeah, that is not adjusted for inflation. Okay, so <clears throat> we've done a lot of talking about John D. Rockefeller. A lot of it has been negative for very good reason, but he wasn't all bad. In fact, he gave a lot of money away. And uh, I'm going to talk at first about some stuff that's already been mentioned, but I'm going to bring it back up to kind of recontextualize. He started very, very young at donating money. Uh, we can, we've said a lot about his dad, but his mom was a good Baptist woman. She had a strong moral sense, religious background. She passed that down to her children. Um, 
she was a devout Baptist and encouraged John uh, to donate 10% of his income to the church, which was kind of a thing. Uh, the Baptists believe, you know, 10% of your income should be tithed. And this is something that stuck with him for all of his life. He would always say, and this is a direct quote, God gave me the money. And he believed that, and he felt a profound obligation to put the money to good use. And it began when he got his first job at 16. And this is when that, he got that on the, I think it would, what was it, September 26th, Greg said, that was job day? That yeah. was the day he got his first job. Yeah. And with his first paycheck, and this was when he was making $45 a year, yeah. With his first paycheck, he bought a red leather book that he called Ledger A that he used to track all of his finances. And this was kind of like a rosebud situation for him where for most, like he kept it his entire life and in a safety deposit box, but he brought it out one time later in life to show to children in a classroom, like a show and tell kind of thing. <laughs> and he broke down and started crying during it. Oh my and so this, you know, people looked at this and the donation started small from the very beginning. Uh, often just to like Baptist missions or downtrodden fellow churchgoers. Uh, in 1857, $28.37 of his $50 salary was donated away. And Jeez. just two short years later, he increased that to $72.22. He really started to kind of turn that up a little bit during the Civil War. He increased his charity, donated orphanages, missions, and even liberating the enslaved wife of an African-American man in Cincinnati. And by 1865, he was giving away over $1,000 annually, which is about $16,000 a year. Wow. And that's when he wasn't, that was pre-Standard Oil, right? Yes. And I'm going to, yeah. And I'm going to skip to after that, basically. I'm going to kind of rush through this because we're getting a little long in the teeth here. But uh, once he was done working at Standard Oil, working for Standard Oil, he really started some big hitter donations and his business prowess kind of carried over because he stopped doing just small piecemeal scatter donations and worked instead to donate large amounts of money to institutions or charities that he thought were capable of making a big difference. He a quote from him is the best philanthropy is constantly in search of finalities, a search for a cause an attempt to cure evils at their source. And the two areas that he donated the most amount of money towards were education, higher education, and medicine. Like snake oil, yeah. Yeah, Paul, what did you say about, um, what did you say about uh, his father-in-law? Abolitionist. Is that yes. it? Okay. And he and, was, he I mean, was, he was as well. Yeah. <clears throat> the first, like, big uh, donation he made that kind of led down that path was in 1882 he began giving large monetary gifts of an undisclosed amount to the Atlanta Baptist Female Seminary a school for African-American women that was nearing bankruptcy and similar gifts were given soon after to both the Tuskegee Institute and the Morehouse College both still around today as historically black black colleges mm -hmm. uh, he kind of set all of, all three of those up in 1890 Rockefeller teamed up with a man named William Rainey Harper an academic and Baptist priest, and together they founded on an initial donation or investment of $600,000, about $17 million today, they founded the University of Chicago together. <clears throat> and over the Dang. course of his life, Rockefeller donated over $35 million, uh, totaling about $2 billion in today's worth. Rockefeller insisted that the name, his name, nor Standard Oil's name, be attached in any way to the university nor anywhere on campus and even rejected the idea 
of a statue of an oil lantern because he was afraid that if people realized how much money he gave, that it would kind of cheapen the whole thing and people wouldn't want to go because they would associate it with Standard Oil. Wow. And he called the University of Chicago the single best investment he's ever made. That's crazy. As far as medicine goes, uh, in 1901, he funded the creation of the Rockefeller Medical Research Institute in New York City. It was the very first biomedical institute in the country, and it was kind of modeled after the Pasteur Institute in France and the Robert Koch Institute in Germany. And it very quickly, within 10 years, rivaled the size and scope of both of those. And also within that first 10 years, they created a vaccine for cerebrospinal meningitis. Also still around today, known as Rockefeller University, it is, in fact, among the top biomedical research facilities in the world. 24 Nobel Prize winners have served on its faculty. He helped a huge amount in post-war South because everybody was real fucked up after the Civil War in the South. Uh, Everybody was poor as shit, and uh, everybody was getting sick. Especially, big problem was an intestinal blood-feeding parasite called hookworm. Awful. And Rockefeller and his institute put forth a huge amount of effort to eradicate hookworm. That initiative ended up going global, and they quickly followed that with initiatives to get rid of malaria, scarlet fever, tuberculosis, and typhus, all under the auspices of the Rockefeller-funded International Health Commission. He also founded and created the first public school of health in Johns Hopkins University and then in Harvard just two years after that. This is an insane list. Yeah, that's such a wide reach. (laughs) There's even more that you haven't mentioned, too. I'm looking at the section of his... Yeah, there is a lot. Um, Including one in a very small town I lived in, Denison University in Ohio. Oh, he helped start that, or what? Uh, He uh, gave considerable donations to them and other Baptist colleges, according to this. But Denison's, like, I mean, maybe 4,000, like, students, like, like undergrad students at any given time. And it's mm-hmm. in a town of like 10,000 people, uh, Granville, Ohio, where I went to elementary school. Sure. But, um, yeah, like I had no idea he had anything to do with that. The only notable people I know from that school are uh, uh, Jennifer Garner, I think, went to college. And <laughs> so did. Uh, <laughs> she uh, did. She Steve, deserved Steve, a mention. Steve, Steve Carell. Carell. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, good. Um, yes. Yeah, Please I did invite both those people on the show. Yeah, yeah I, I did. Have no idea he had anything to do with that. But. I definitely truncated the list a little bit. I just wanted to say the big stuff. I'm going to yeah, finish no, big ones. on Rockefeller Sr. And then I've just got a little bit I want to say about his son. Sure. This is a quote, not a quote. This is written. Rockefeller penned this at age 86. This is the words he used to sum up his life I was early taught to work as well as play. My life has been one long, happy holiday, full of work and full of play. I dropped the worry on the way, and God was good to me every day. And his whole, uh, you know, philanthropy, charity, definitely carried over to his son. And his son, John D. Rockefeller Jr., set up a lot of things that are still around today with huge, huge implications, I'm sure you can imagine. For instance, he helped fund a lot of the programs that the League of Nations uh, set forth. And he critically funded and founded the Council on Foreign Relations, which I'm sure you have all heard of. A political think tank, kind of a pipeline for 
you know, CIA types. And I don't mean that in a negative way. That's just, right. just so happens to be the, um, <clears throat> the way it goes. He was also big into conservation. Uh, let's see, purchased and donated land for many American national parks, including Grand Teton, Mesa Verde, Acadia, Great Smoky Mountains, Yosemite, and Shenandoah. Dude. Wow. That's a list. Wow. Holy shit. Yeah. The, the Rockefeller Foundation is still around today. While it's not quite as big, it is, as of 2015, the 39th largest U.S. foundation by total giving. Can you guess what number one is? Bill and Melinda Gates. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, I was going to say the uh, Roy Kroc or whatever. The McDonald's, McDonald's guy? Yeah. Ray Kroc? Does, do yeah. they give a lot of money? I mean, I hear their names a lot. Well, they have like I know that the Ronald McDonald Foundation is a huge organization to clowns. Yeah, <laughs> you know the thing enormous is like clown, clown army. That's something that screwed with me because like my family got. A, we thought it went to serious, kids with heart disease. Help from the Ronald McDonald uh, House because uh, when my brother was in the hospital when he was a baby, um, we had to like live at the hospital basically for like two months or three months something like that. But you and were afraid of clowns. I was. I was terrified. Jeff was slowly so becoming like, a clown. <laughs> it's terrible. I still am, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, that was, like, that was incredible because, like, the oh, hospital yeah. we were at was in Columbus, like, an hour away from where we <laughs> lived. And basically my mom had a place to stay without paying for, movie. like, a month so that she could be near her got a movie to about. potentially dying son who didn't die. So It's a great organization. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, sorry, I wanted to speed through my section. I ended up really warp speeding through it um but i think you, it is important uh, to mention oh sorry go ahead well i just thought it, you know it is important to mention you can say what you want about his business practices and all that but there certainly was a positive side to all of the money that he had i think we wouldn't be anywhere close to where we are today if the rockefeller family didn't donate as much money as they did to this country we're very fortunate you, that such a such a personality was not he could have hoarded all that wealth and been a real dickhead. Yeah, with money. <laughs> I was gonna say, you know, like, he could have made private well, armies. If everybody and stuff. else had it, he wouldn't have had to give it away in the first place. Well, damn. What so, I, uh, <laughs> what I, uh, I think the unsung hero here is his mother, who instilled those good morals in him. True. Thanks, Baptist. and that train, that train wreck, the train wreck. Yeah, the train really wreck, set yeah. him straight. <laughs> Paul, what you got? Um, do you guys do any research on the Rockefeller Center? in oh, new york i'm sorry that's right john d rockefeller jr also paid for the entire rockefeller center including yeah, actually i did 30 rockefeller center that you may be familiar with also known as the rca building also known as yep. the ge building also known as the nbc building also known as the comcast building God. <laughs> <laughs> thank Please you Kate. stop <laughs> my head's yeah, too the, uh, spinning the famous um, uh shut up greg the famous uh <laughs> there's the big tree in in new york city the big christmas trees at rockefeller center there's that perfect uh, ice skating rink right in front of that gold statue of atlas how do you know it's perfect because uh, i've seen it in movies dan what do you you, you, you new yorkers are all the same yeah Good Lord. isn't uh the tonight show there that's a target yeah all the big nbc shows are in 30 rockefeller that's the show but that's where their studio is so yeah yeah geez i gotta say thank you to you guys uh you really carried the episode especially dan and greg um feel like comparatively i didn't do much but whatever it all it, it all counts carrying my weight in the vanderbilt episode well, i'm just uh 
I'm happy that that went so smoothly because I, I I changed up my style of writing my notes. I tried to instead of you started using Google Docs to talk off of. I like wrote out the whole sentence of what I really wanted to say. Oh, okay. I think that worked out a lot better. I kind of so did I that basically too. Basically, like yeah. reading a script. Ripped. instead. I feel like it's only right to give Ryan the final word, and then Kane steal it from him at the last second. Drainage. <laughs> <laughs> What? Incredible. All right. See, did you say drainage? Yeah, he was doing the Daniel Plainview. Because uh, I completely <laughs> fucked it up in the beginning. <laughs> Remember that DR? That yeah. is, I am going to have to turn that, that uh, drainage I, It down looks so like much. it exceeded <laughs> the uh, limits. You're looking at the, the audio. Yeah, it's just a, a rectangle. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right. Unfortunately, um, There Will Be Blood is one of those movies that. Uh, Sits on that list of movies that I really enjoyed that fell asleep a third of the way through. God. <laughs> <laughs> Finish it, Greg. I can't yeah, stand people to fall asleep ago. during movies. Yeah. Actually, well, let's I, I, fell, I fell It asleep is like silent for like a good 25 minutes in the beginning. I, it, it I takes fell asleep a during a Maynard Ferguson jazz trumpet concert. I Jesus can fall asleep during God. anything. You fell asleep during Tenet in theaters. Yeah. <laughs> that was super loud. That was one of the Good loudest point. movies I've ever seen. It was really loud. But it was really warm. <laughs> it was super warm. Okay. Yeah, we we are no longer talking about John D. Rockefeller. Yeah. Let's uh let's wrap it here. And hopefully you enjoyed this. And if you did, stick around because we got three more motherfuckers to talk about. So <laughs> Good God. This has been This American Wealth. I'm stopping yeah John D. Rockefeller is my name monopolizing oil is my game not many people can do what I've done conquered all the oil companies every single one people say I'm a robber baron that's untrue This is the reason that I got sued. I lost my companies, my fortune and my wealth. I'm aging and starting to lose my health. I lost my company and it's a shame. It was a bad judge and I had a good claim. When I entered, there was no money to be made. But I flipped the industry without any aid. I look at myself as a captain of industry, leading this oil nation brilliantly. But I lost all my money and that's no fun. I killed off the competition without a gun. Looking back, I made a fortune in my years. But now losing my company brings me tears. I used to own all the oil companies just to myself. I took them one by one with no help i had everything i wanted oil money power but then the court began to scour i think it should be up to the people to decide if i'm evil everything i did was completely legal i worked hard as a businessman i made tons of money but now the court has to interfere i think they're getting grumpy i was a philanthropist lost all my money now i need a therapist but what's done is done and cannot be changed But at the time the situation made me enraged 